1989, I was on a mission trip to Bemidji, Minnesota. And in Bemidji, Minnesota, we worked with some Native American tribes, I think doing some uh, Bible club stuff. And then we were going and doing some sharing of the gospel. And we had some tracks that basically said, do you know for sure that you are going to be with God for eternity? Do you know for sure that you're going to be with God for eternity? And as we just passed these out and shared them, we weren't trying to be offensive or do anything, but just trying to share them along the way. I got one that uh, got tore up, and I've had this since 1989. I think they started to tear it up, and and then they decided, instead of tearing this up, I'm going to kind of just mark on it. So they wrote, do you know for sure that there is a God? And then they had a long letter attached to it that uh, says this. Again, this is from 1989. First of all, I want to point out that I have no problems with your belief per se. However, when you pass these little booklets around, you go too far. There is no need to guilt trip the gullible and no need to offend the non-believer. Yours is not the only belief, nor the only God. You may not believe in Buddhism or Hinduism or even Mormonism. However, these systems of belief exist. They are realities to practitioners of those faiths. And therefore, you have uh, no right to consider them lost or heathen, telling them that if they don't believe as you do, they will suffer. Where is your proof? They go on to say, I realize that many of you had this Baptist philosophy fed to you as children and thus are deep-rooted in your belief. Now, we did not go around advertising that we were Baptists, and these tracts actually came from a non-Baptist entity, Evangelism Explosion, if you were familiar with that. But They apparently saw the name of our church on our old wore-out hand-me-down school bus, and they figured that out. So anyway, and if you've ever been on one of those old-timey mission trips where after the school ran the bus down, then you got it at the church, then you know what I'm talking about. He says this, you must realize that there's a whole world out there waiting to be explored, a world of different lands and cultures and beliefs. So which is correct? Now listen to what they say. All are correct at once, for it matters not how many believe, but that at least one person you believes, that to use a word of yours is faith. So this person said, it doesn't make any difference what you believe, as long as you have a belief, then your belief is as good as my belief And it's all done by faith. Well, the truth of the matter is, is we can all believe different things and we can all be wrong. We can all be wrong, but we can't all be right. But when it comes to God's word, as was shared a couple of weeks ago, we have eyewitnesses who shared and saw Jesus We have men who have been carried along and directed by the Holy Spirit to write his word. And so this stands, the Bible stands as our authority in life, not by blind belief, but because of the eyewitnesses and the historical accuracy and of what we have seen in God's word. 
So take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse number 3 and follow down through verse number 9. But as we think about this, Peter is going to write and share about those who will face judgment because of living and teaching the wrong kinds of things. 2 Peter chapter 2, pick up with me in verse number 3. It says, they will exploit you in their greed with made-up stories. Their condemnation pronounced long ago is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. Here he's talking about false teachers. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell, and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment, and if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly, and if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral, for as the righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Now, as we think about the writing of Second Peter, Peter writes with three primary purposes in mind. He wants to encourage believers to wait for the day of the Lord. He wants, because Jesus is coming and judgment is coming. He wants them to guard their faith and what they believe, the truth of Scripture. And then he wants them to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has shared in the opening section of chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And remember, they put the chapter headings in verses. They listed them later. So Peter is continuing this thought. As he says at the end of chapter 1, that holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's saying the Bible did not come by people making up their own ideas. As we look at over 40 authors and 1,500 plus years and different countries and different continents from which the scripture was written. He's saying they did not write their own ideas, but instead they were carried along by God's spirit. And then in chapter two, verse number one, he begins to warn them that false teachers are going to crop up among them. Now in chat, in verse number four, he actually has one long sentence from verse number four to to the beginning of verse number 10 is one very long sentence with four if clauses and a then clause. All right? And this basically is what it says. If God did not spare the angels, and if God did not spare the ancient world, that's the world of Noah's day, and if God reduced... Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, and if God rescued righteous Lot, then God knows how to deliver the godly out of trials, 
and to keep the unrighteous under judge, uh, under condemnation until the day of judgment. So there's four if statements. If God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell, if God did not spare the people of Noah's day, if God uh, did not reduce Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, if God did not rescue light, th- uh, Lot, then... We come to that then clause, and this is what it's all about. Then, God knows how to deliver the godly, and God knows how to punish the wicked. That's really what this is saying. So that we find in this text, the thought is, is that for the false teachers and the false prophets, God will judge the wicked, and God will deliver the righteous. Now, when we think of false prophets, sometimes we think of people who stand in front of large audiences or people who are members of some kind of religious cult, or we think of, of all kinds of different beliefs that someone may have. But understand that when someone shares across a table with someone an errant view of God, who he is, just one-on-one, then ultimately they're teaching falsehood and are a false teacher. Or a parent who disses God altogether. They teach maybe by doing and saying nothing. God's just not important. He's not even on our radar at our house. Or or maybe it is someone who stands in front of a crowd. But the issue for us is that we need to be aware that there is false teaching out there. And when we speak, we need to beware that we always speak the truth of Scripture. Okay? We need to be aware that there is false teaching out there. And we need to beware that when we speak, we're always speaking accurately what God has to say in his revealed word. So as we think about this judgment that is coming, it is one thing to believe a lie. It is another to try to pass that off as truth. And so this is really what Peter is getting down to. And so as we jump in and we think about the judgment on false prophets, these false prophets come in many shapes and sizes and have different different size audiences, even up to one across from a table. So we find first the assurance of judgment on false prophets. We find that there is an assurance that is going to take place. And he shares this in verse number three. And we picked up verse three because it says that that as we think about the false prophets, that they are assured of judgment. He says that they will exploit you in their greed with made-up stories. And he says their condemnation pronounced long ago. So he says that there is an assurance that a judgment is going to happen upon false prophets. And then he says their condemnation was pronounced long ago. In other words, God shared the verdict a long time ago. God shared the verdict that anyone who strays from the accuracy of Scripture, he's pronouncing a judgment upon. And then in verse 3, it says this as well. Their condemnation pronounced long ago is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. So their condemnation is pronounced long ago, and their destruction does not sleep. Now, if you were ever a kid and you got in trouble... 
especially like me growing up in church, if I got in trouble in church, I always hoped by the end of the church service that when we got home, my parents would have forgotten. That was always my hope. Or if I got in trouble early in the day and my parents did not have time to deal with me, it was one of these when you get home kind of things. My hope was always that, man, I hope the punishment falls asleep. They have pronounced that, hey, when I get home, I'm going to get it. But I'm hoping that their punishment falls asleep at this point, that they fall asleep at the wheel, and I don't have to worry about this. Unfortunately, when you have uh, six other siblings, there's always one who will remind your parents. There's always one who has to be the reminder. So I didn't get away with that very often. But the picture is, is God has pronounced the judgment upon those who teach falsehood. And it's as if the verdict has been read, but the full punishment has not yet been delivered. Frederick Douglass was an abolitionist. He was a former slave who slid out of Maryland and went into New York and some of the other New New England states. And he was an orator and he was a writer. And as he was writing his autobiography, he was telling the story about his mother. His mother grew up in slavery and as she grew up in slavery, had a very hard life. But when she got old and was now useless to her master, her master sent her away from all of her family, all the people that she knew to die alone. And Frederick Douglass in his autobiography asked the question, Will not a righteous God visit these things? Will not a righteous God visit these things? You know, there are many today that think, man, I can live how I want because I'm getting away with it. There are many today who think, man, I I can be immoral and adulterous and lie and cheat and steal and be greedy. And I, I can do all this and I'm going, I'm getting away with it. But the picture is, is you might get away with it for a little while. But ultimately, the Lord has said he has already pronounced the verdict and that a day of judgment is coming. So that I'm not so much worried about, hey, what's going on today? What's going on here? What's going on now? I can live how I want. I can eat, drink, be merry, not worry about God, forget about God, do what I want, live what I want, step on whoever I need to, to climb up the ladder. I can live. And and, and the picture is, is listen, God has already pronounced a verdict for those people. And though the verdict has been pronounced, the day of judgment has not yet come. And so I would tell you today, if you've never received Jesus as your Savior, today is the day. Because all of us have sinned. And though we may not, as we look at our life, I may not as be as bad as these people out here or these people out here. The truth is, is that all of us, including me, all of us are absolutely disqualified from a perfect heaven with a perfect God. God says judgment is coming. But not only do we see the assurance of judgment on false prophets, but then the Lord really is going to drive it home and show the history 
of judgment on false prophets. He's going to go back and take us into scripture and say, look, if you think I've fallen asleep at the wheel here, if you think I've just closed my eyes and overlook everything you're doing, let me share with you what has happened in history. And we pick up in verse number four. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. What we find is, is the Bible tells us that God did not spare the angels who sinned. God did not spare the angels. Now, it's interesting because these angels uh, probably are quite unique. We know that Jesus in his life dealt with demons and he saw people with demons and he even saw a man who had a multitude of demons and and remember they all went into a, a big group of, of pigs. We, we just looked at this just a, a couple of months back. So the reality is that there are demons around us and in our world today, but there are some who are already facing judgment and are already in chains in darkness. Some believe that in Genesis chapter 6, where it tells us that the sons of God married and cohabitated with the daughters of men and produced an evil offspring that then would be pre-flood and they would die in the flood, that this was part of that group of demons that did this. We find in Genesis 6 where it uses the phrase, the sons of God. We find here in Second Peter chapter 2 in verse number 4. We also look over in Jude, I believe it's verse number 7, and we find maybe that is a possibility. But anyway, whether that is the possibility or not, we find that there are some angels who are presently incarcerated and locked up. God did not spare them. The second example he gives is that God did not spare the ancient world, but he protected Noah and his family in this world of ungodliness. He he allowed the flood to come onto the world of the ungodly, only saving Noah and his family. There were people, as Jesus would say in Matthew 24, that in the days of Noah, so will the days of the coming of the Son of Man be, that people will be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. They'll be living their life, doing their thing. They'll be marrying, they'll be divorcing, they'll be uh, off into sin, that God won't be on their radar. All these things will be happening. And this is a sign, just as it was in Noah's day, that judgment is coming, that there is coming a day of judgment for the world in the future. And then he gives the third picture. And if God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah. But he doesn't just use the words that he's used in the previous two statements. He here says that God reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and brought them to absolute extinction. That God wiped them out. Now in Genesis chapter 18, we find that... Abraham was warned about the city of Sodom. And as Abraham was warned by, by three angels who came to visit him about the city of Sodom, you remember what happened? He bargained with God. God, if you find 50 righteous people in this city of Sodom, will you not destroy? God, if you find 45, if you find 40, if you find 35, if you find 30, if you find 25, if you find 20, if you find 15, Lord, if you find 10, 10 righteous people, 
in Sodom? Will you refuse from, uh, recuse yourself from destroying it? And the Lord agrees. And the next day, two angels go into the city of Sodom. And as they go into the city of Sodom, it says they enter into Lot's house. And as they enter into Lot's house, the men of the city come knocking at the door because they all want to involve themselves in a homosexual relationship with these two angels that have come from God. There's the picture. And then it says that God told Lot, Get out of that city. And he rained fire down on the city. Now, we know from the Old Testament passages like Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 18, I think around verse 22, chapter 20 around verse number 13, we know that in the Old Testament, in the moral law, it says that a man was not to be with a lie with another man in a a sexual relationship. We find this uh, echoed in the New Testament as well. We look at passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, we look in the book of Jude, uh, verse number 6 or 7, we find all of these passages laid out clearly, and God took this sin of Sodom very seriously. Now, there are those today that say, man, what do you do with with folks in, in the homosexual world? Well, let me tell you what the world says. The world says, affirm, affirm, affirm. You need to go along and get along. You, you, you just need to, to quit being homophobic and you need to affirm. And yet when we look at the truth of scripture, we cannot biblically, theologically, and morally do that. And then there's another voice that comes from the other side. Hate them, hate them, hate them. And when we look at our scripture, we recognize that biblically and theologically, we cannot do that. So we cannot affirm them and we cannot hate them. Instead, we speak the truth in love and we stand for what is righteous. And we may be called names for that, but that doesn't mean that we're not trying to be kind. It doesn't mean that we're not trying to show love. The most loving thing that we can do is tell people the truth. And so we find that that this city was absolutely destroyed by God. And I am afraid, especially in our world, in our culture, that many have just gone along to get along and said, hey, we'll just believe anything in the church because we don't want to take any stands that might hurt somebody's feelings. And the truth is, Scripture is very clear. Scripture is absolutely clear. And so we don't affirm and we don't hate, but we speak the truth, Ephesians chapter 4 in love, and we always stand in truth. There's a history of judgment. But thirdly, we not only think about the assurance of judgment on false prophets and the, the history of judgment on false prophets, but thirdly, we, we really get a picture of, of God and his handiwork and his plan as he works through the issues of false prophets. We see the pattern that God sets for us. Because it's very interesting. Notice in verse number 5. It says that God when he went to, to destroy uh, the ancient world. It says and if he didn't spare, spare the ancient world. But protected Noah a preacher of righteousness and seven others. There is coming a judgment on false teachers false leaders, false prophets. 
But the pattern in judgment on false prophets is God protected Noah and his family. That Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And as he found grace and followed God's will and by faith built an ark, Hebrews 11, verse number 7. And by faith he built this ark for the saving of his family. God protected him. But not God not only protected Noah, but God also protected Lot. And it refers to him even as righteous Lot. God rescued Lot. In verse number seven. And if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral. Now listen. The Bible doesn't pull any punches because it calls the actions of Sodom depraved and it calls them immoral. There are some who take a verse from Ezekiel and say, oh, it was just that in Sodom they didn't show hospitality. That, my friends, does not go far enough in what we find in Scripture. The depraved actions of the immoral. But he rescued righteous Lot. And then it says in verse number 9 that the Lord knows how to to rescue the godly from trials. That God will deliver the godly. God delivered and rescued, protected Noah, and God rescued Lot, and God will deliver the godly. Isn't it interesting that God could say, look, I'm going to bring punishment, but for you who know me, I'm going to share and show grace. So why is it that God, through the working of his spirit, brings Peter to this place of saying, man, God really brought condemnation on these people. Notice what it says, In verse number six, he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the godly. So God says, look, world, wake up. Here's what's coming for those who are ungodly, those who have written me off, those who don't care. There's coming a place where they will live without me forever. And yet he rescues Lot, he protects Noah, and he delivers us. But how can God justify himself in doing that? You know, you may not be as bad as the people there were in Noah's day, but let me tell you, you're, you're, you're not a shining, perfect example, and you're not good enough to get to heaven on your own. So if I'm not good enough to get to heaven on my own, then how can I get to heaven? How is it that this works for me? All of us have thought things. All of us have said things. All of us have done things that have disqualified us from a perfect God's presence in a perfect heaven. Now, you may look around you and think, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. You may look around in society and say, man, I'm not doing this. You may look at Hamas and say, I don't act like that. But the truth is, is you're looking at the wrong person. What about you compared to Jesus? How does that one match up for you? Does that one match up where you can say, man, I'm as good as he, I'm as perfect as he? So if I'm not good enough to get to heaven on my own, how can I get to heaven? If God didn't spare the angels, and if God didn't spare the ancient world, and if God didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah. How can he spare me? Romans 8.31. It tells us 
that God spared not his son, but delivered us up, but delivered him up for us all. Listen, Romans 8.31, how can we be spared? We can be spared because Jesus wasn't spared. Because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. That Jesus took the wrath. That Jesus took the condemnation. That Jesus took the punishment, the destruction that we deserve. And when he died on the cross, he did not die just as a good example. He died for our sins according to the scripture. And now we can embrace forgiveness. But it's only one way. And it's through him alone. So I ask... Have you trusted the son that God did not spare? Are you going to rely on yourself to stand before God? Because if God didn't spare the ancient world, and if God didn't spare the people of Noah's day, and if God didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, I don't think you stand much hope unless you come to understand that God did not spare his own son. But he delivered him up for us all. And through him alone, we have salvation. With that, let's pray. I want to ask you today, do you know that you know Jesus? Have you received him in your life? This is life's most important question. The thing that keeps people from heaven is sin. And all of us have sinned. So none of us deserve to get to heaven. And you can't work hard enough, and you can't be good enough, and you can't give enough, or go to church enough, or do enough religious things. You just can't do that. But there is someone who came and lived a perfect life. and He died on the cross. And his death was absolutely sufficient. His death was enough. And because God did not spare his son, when you trust him alone, you can be saved. That's our joy. Lord, I pray that you take these next moments of invitation, reflection, that you would speak and that you would move. Lord, for that one who needs to open their heart to Jesus today, God, I pray that you, through the working of your spirit, that your kindness would lead to repentance, that your conviction would allow them to see guilt, but ultimately that their eyes would be opened that you did not spare your own son. He took our punishment. Thank you, Lord. Move in this time. Amen.